today on Ag News Daily. Our bankers really do care what's going on out there. They, they want to be informed. They want to know what they need to be aware of in the future, what might be coming down the pike. More importantly, what affects their customers. Listeners, we're only 24 sleeps away from Christmas. We're sitting here December 1st, 2023. Are you one of those, Delaney, that counts down the days to Christmas? No, I think that's really what you do when you have children or are a child, but it's not as fun (laughs) being an adult counting down for Christmas when there's just two of you. So, no. Will you be counting down for Christmas? Well, I obviously already know what the number is on the countdown. Uh, I consider myself more of a Scrooge, but you are correct. The uh, (laughs) children in my household will make me aware every morning how many days are left. Well, Tanner, they they have to have fun. You have to be a good dad and participate in that. Have to be a good dad. Yes, that is correct. We may make it feel a little bit more like Christmas coming up this weekend. We've got winter weather advisories in effect for much of southern and southeastern Iowa through noon today as more snow is expected to fall. Another inch of light snow is expected through the evening on top of what has already fallen. Northern Illinois and parts of eastern Iowa could see also some snow flurries and mixed precipitation. Looks like the central portion of the state is getting left out. Rain is expected to continue moving north. The rainy mix will turn into a light freeze the further north that it gets as uh, we continue to monitor this system that is moving north of I-80. But other than that, that looks like the only weather for this morning. And maybe some rain for our friends in other parts of the country, Tanner, but certainly not here in central Iowa. That's correct. Tanner, I've got a series of stories here this morning looking at farmland sales. Uh, so I'm going to piece these together here. If you'll give me the moment, give me the floor. Uh, Secretary Vilsack spoke earlier this week on Wednesday talking about commodity exports as well as foreign farmland purchases. And he said that while we're seeing China's purchases of U.S. exports significantly lower due to the advantage of lower prices in South America. We've seen a nearly 20% drop in U.S. exports to China. At the same time, he mentioned in another interview that the U.S. government was working hard to reduce American exports and our over-reliance on China and other big markets. So a little bit of an interesting indication there, but as we look at foreign farmland purchases. He said that's also something, of course, they're trying to to limit. And as we look at foreign farmland purchases and ownership here, a recent analysis of farmland sales in the Midwest and Plain states found that foreign investors paid on average 13.7% more than American purchasers for comparable land tracts. The infrequent transactions did not affect land values overall, according to an associate professor of economics at Auburn University, but they did say that could be a potential um, factor moving forward as we think about purchasing land. As we look at total acres in the United States, some 37.6 million acres or about 2.9% of all agricultural land in the country is owned by foreign entities. Of course, we've seen many states, Tanner, putting in legislation to try and ban that happening from within their states, as well as some federal legislation as well. And as we think about land values for 2024, uh, People's Company has put out their National Land Values Report. 
and they said, while we saw really strong market performance in 2023, the outlook for 2024 is expected to remain flat. They said a lot of folks are thinking their intuition should tell them that land prices should soften with lower commodity prices and higher interest rates, but that's simply not going to be the case. On average, we're going to see farmland prices stabilize and remain steady. Some might be higher in other parts of the country, Tanner, but uh, you've got farmland leveraged at about 14% nationwide. And Steve Brewer of People's Company said there's not going to be any hard softening here in 2024. And we certainly saw that from a recent land watch of farmland sales in Iowa, Illinois, Kansas, Kentucky, and Virginia that had some not record high sales, but certainly some strong sales overall. Saw a track of land in Illinois sell for just over $14,000, another sale in Northwest Iowa for $13,500, a big one in uh, Kentucky for $23,000, Tanner. So across the board, we're still seeing, as Steve mentioned, prices remain very strong, and that's going to remain the case heading into 2024. Well, that's good. Well, listeners, that's all the news we've got for today. Delaney took all the time we've got. <laughs> uh, just kidding. It did give me time, though, to look up a story that I should have transitioned to off the opening. Christmas trees are, despite the drought, still going to keep up with demand, especially in Texas. Christmas tree production continues to hold strong, even though they experience their extreme drought. Fred Riley of Texas A&M's Tree Service and Improvement Coordinator says that he's expecting another high demand this year for Christmas trees. They're usually planted November through March. Trees will be sold after they reach a height of six to eight feet. That could depend upon the year as far as growing conditions as to how old that tree gets when that gets to that height. Although the extreme drought hit most of Texas, there will be no shortage of trees thanks to the association's growers that have been planning ahead as far as that goes. There will be continued uh, continued analysis as tree farms move through different generations to see how these farms will build. Virginia pine trees are expected to be priced near the same prices of last year, which is certainly good news for those looking to bring some holiday cheer into their home. So we won't have a shortage and it's good to see that prices won't be driven up because of drought. Tanner, is your family a real Christmas tree family or a fake Christmas tree family? Uh, both. We have too many Christmas trees, but yes, we always get one real one and then everything else is fake. Is it like the Griswold family Christmas where you're trudging out to cut one down? That's correct. Got to cut it down each year. Oh, well, we've never really been a real Christmas tree family, so I can't relate, but good to hear that those who are will have a plethora of supplies available to them. That's right. Well, Tanner, as we look at farm income here for 2023, compared to 2022, the USDA has estimated that net farm income will drop as much as 17% this year as we're getting ready to head into the final stretch of the season and farmers are starting to put together the balance sheets for taxes for 2023. Farm income is expected to drop fairly sharply. According to USDA's November estimate, it's going to be about $10 billion higher than it was in September. However, we're still going to be 
at a deficit compared to years prior. USDA's Economic Research Service expects net farm income to decline $31.8 billion from 2022, or about 17%, as I mentioned earlier, to a total net farm income of $151 billion. Uh, The report also reflected, of course, lower commodity prices for corn and soybeans and many other commodities, as well as higher expenses, particularly interest, reflected the change that they made in their November report. As a result, the USDA said that they're expecting to see some erosion of working capital and higher debt utilization. The USDA released two estimates, both net farm income and net cash income, And that report is available to everyone who would like to take a look at it here. But net cash income did surpass what we saw in 2022, but it's expected to decline uh, heading into the new year a little bit there. And uh, six of the nine regions the USDA uses in its analysis are expected to see average cash farm income fall overall in 2023 compared to the relative previous year. So heading into 2024, Tanner, we're certainly seeing that USDA is suggesting to tighten the belt here because it's going to continue as that trend heading into 2024. And the trend is expected to continue where we see less net farm income and less net cash overall on the farm. Hey, got it. I'm just going to string together the last couple of headlines that I have to wrap up my news for this morning. Yeah. <laughs> Illinois does have five central counties that are now considered disaster zones, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, because of losses from a storm that rolled through five months ago. These are considered derecho damaged counties that tore through Illinois on June 29th. <clears throat> Springfield, in particular, suffered millions of dollars of damages to their city and they will get support from the federal government. The bordering counties can also apply, but as far as that is concerned, uh, there will be more information available at their local USDA offices to get those funds as put together. We also got a greenhouse gas emissions report that came, excuse me, that came from the Food and Agriculture Organization. They said that 14% increase in greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture from 2000 to 2021. Stated again, a large portion of that, over half of the increase, came from livestock. That includes the footprint of cattle and sheep and of hogs, chicken, and other dairy operations. This is a per kilogram measurement. Around 53% of the increase is what was derived from livestock activities. The interesting part, Delaney, is as they look at around the world and compare greenhouse gas emissions, most countries' agriculture results in a 40 to 45 percent contribution for a nation's greenhouse gas emissions. In the United States, it's only 10 percent of the total emissions. But nonetheless, it'll be interesting to see if and when they ever factor in the net effect of all of the cover crops and green growing because when you throw in the agriculture or you throw in the uh, forestry into the mix with agriculture that percentage obviously drops the last piece that i've got is just an israel hamas update there are now concerns that potentially israel knew about the october 7th attack before it took place 
the Israeli military might have been given heads up through their strategic partners. The military announced that fighting has resumed only minutes after the seven-day ceasefire against the Hamas in the Gaza region. The resumption came moments after the seven-day truce expired. Negotiations with Qatari and Egyptian mediators are still continuing to push forward to hopefully get the release of more hostages. Meanwhile, still no aid trucks have crossed into Gaza after the truce has ended. We'll see what comes about next week for more information there. But that's what I've got today, Delaney. Well, Senator, I have one more quick update here on a story I reported on earlier this week related to year-round E15 sales. After the letter that was issued from a couple of Midwestern states to a district court here in the state of Iowa, the EPA has finally responded. Uh, Not the response that I think a lot of those states were hoping to get as they were pushing for the EPA to finalize the ruling on year-round E15 sales. But EPA has come out now to say they plan to issue a final E15 ruling by March 28th of 2024 and ask the federal court to allow the agency to meet this deadline in response to that summary judgment filed earlier this week. Now, Tanner, as I reported on yesterday, the EPA technically had 90 days from when they first published a proposed rule on March 6th of 2023. Then it went through a public commenting period, and that closed April 20th of 2023, and they were supposed to have about 90 days post that to release their final ruling. We, of course, did not see that happen, hence why these states have issued the letter But EPA, uh, that was apparently enough to get the EPA to move and have now said, yep, it's on our docket of March 28th, 2024. So I'm sure this is not the end of this discussion. We'll probably see those states respond to that. But that is the latest update. So I think that is all the news I have for today, Tanner, aside from taking an update or looking at an update here on the commodity markets. So as we take a look at the overnights here, March corn is down two and a half cents at 480 and a quarter. November, excuse me, January soybeans are down 10 and a half cents at 1332. March wheat down six and a half pennies at 591 and a half. Hard red December, hard red March wheat. That's going to throw me off here a little bit as we get into looking to next contract month, but March hard red winter wheat is down nine and three quarters cents at 6.33 and March spring wheat down eight and a half pennies on the board at 7.21. As we take a look at markets in the overnight for livestock, pick up that. As we take a look at the markets for livestock here, heading into the opening session, February live cattle will open at a buck 71.82 and a half. January feeder cattle will open at 2.1995 and February lean hogs will open at 71.47 and a half. For today's Friday conversation, I caught up with I caught up with Ed Elfman of the American Bankers Association. Catching up with Ed Elfman, the Senior Vice President of Ag and Rural Banking Policy for the American Bankers Association. Ed, I realize we should have caught up at the American Bankers Association conference a few weeks ago, but here we are nonetheless at Trade Talk. Well, first of all, thanks for being a part of our conference. We really appreciated it. Um, You did a great job explaining what's going on in the global economy and making sure that our bankers are aware, which I think leads into some discussion around our conference. 
our bankers really do care what's going on out there. They, they want to be informed. They want to know what they need to be aware of in the future, what might be coming down the pike. More importantly, what affects their customers? Because the thing about banking, we have our own issues we work through for sure, but our customers have a lot of issues they need to work through, and we need to help them anticipate what might be out there, what they need to know a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. So our conference focused a lot around future of ag, where the global markets are, what, what the world looks like overall. Um, so it was really a great opportunity for us to have almost a large group discussion of what's going on in the world. Thank you for making a plug. I didn't pay Ed to say that, by the way, listeners. But Ed, the ABA, for those of our listeners who are not familiar with the banking organization, give us the 10,000-foot overview. Yeah, so American Bankers Association has been around for almost 150 years. We represent banks of all sizes. We have from the largest institutions in the country, some folks that are based overseas that are members of ours, to the smallest bank you can imagine. I mean, we have banks with three employees that are members of our organization. So we represent everybody across the board. In Congress, we're usually in the banking committees, financial services, ways and means where taxes are put together, all of that. But then agriculture committee has been a big deal for us for a long time. Our Ag Bankers Committee, which has 14 members from across the country, was formed in 1913. It's the second oldest committee at ABA. So when people, it's kind of funny, sometimes people are like, I didn't realize you were so involved in agriculture. Well, I'm a farm kid. Of course, I'm involved in ag in a lot of ways. But the organization as a whole has been involved in ag for over 100 years. Uh, It's a big deal to us and matters because in every single small town, there's a small bank. We got to make sure that they're well represented in Washington, D.C. Absolutely. So you mentioned the ABA conference was held just a few weeks ago in Oklahoma City. It was a great conference, great turnout, a lot of bankers in the audience. But as you think about the conference, I read an article, I can't remember who published it now, but it was looking at the banking survey that was done in coordination with a few other organizations. And I found it really interesting to note that the thing bankers are most worried about heading into 2024 is not inflation, it's farmer liquidity, farm profitability, and some of those financial factors. Yeah, so from a banking standpoint, we're always worried about cash flow. I mean, it's the easiest way to say it is cash flow. Because at the end of the day, if a farmer's not cash flowing, it's really hard to extend credit and keep that cycle moving along. So we want to make sure we're doing everything we can to extend credit out to them and keep them in a good place. I've been telling a lot of folks, uh, right now we're in a real situation of communicate, communicate, communicate. Bankers and farmers need to talk to each other. And when you go in, your farmers and ranchers, your listeners basically, go into the bank now, you're going to be asked for more documentation than you might have been asked for before. But it's all for safeguarding. It's to make sure that you're in the right place, that things are going the right way, to make sure that you're not... You're not going to get yourself in a situation you shouldn't be in, right? So from the survey side of the world, uh, ABA Farmer Max survey, and we send that out to bankers across the country, and we've done it for quite a few years now. It gives us good pulse on what everybody cares about. And you would think maybe regulations would be number one, right, or inflation. But you're right. It's where the farm economy is going, what it looks like. I mean, corn's down again today, right? Um, Corn seems to be down all the time when you're trying to sell it, but... When you start to look at where commodity prices are, where the cycle might go, we had really good times in ag for a long time. If they start to fall off, it will squeeze margins and it will make things a little more difficult at times. We're not jumping too far ahead right now. We're taking it each day as it comes forward and see what it looks like. But 
farmers need to really become good business managers, I think, into the next, into the future, really. Because at the end of the day, you've got to make sure you're marketing your crops appropriately, that you're looking at insurance options, that you have basically everything on the table. And bankers are a part of that discussion and need to be included in those discussions. Yeah, I'm definitely a big advocate of finding a banker that works for you and your operation. My husband and I spent a lot of time finding just the right banker for us. So, so I, this is near and dear to my heart. Um, Ed, as you look at some of the other issues impacting rural America heading into 2024, you're obviously the policy guy, so we got to talk some policy. Farm Bill, uh, you had G.T. GT Thompson at, at the conference a few weeks ago. He didn't share the most optimistic outlook for getting the Farm Bill passed, even in 2024. Well, one thing he did say is that we we're going to get a Farm Bill extension, and we got one about a week later. So he's a bit of a soothsayer. I will give him that. Um, it was my honor to be on stage with him and talk about Farm Bill and, and what's going on there. The key takeaway for us is we needed that extension because when we hit January 1 and you revert to permanent law, which everybody talks about all the time, people don't realize from a lending standpoint, that's a pretty bad deal too. Our loan programs go away. They don't function or operate at all, basically. And then you have corn, you can loan against corn at $20 a bushel and like that's gonna throw everything off for a real loop. So getting the one-year extension was key, first key. Getting into a long-term farm bill is a big deal, though. We need to make sure that we have that stability on, on for five years, which helps a lot. But we have a lot of priorities in the farm bill. There's 12 titles, and we care about six of them. People don't realize how involved we really are. So some of our priorities, increasing the guaranteed loan programs. Right now, they're about 2.2 million with inflation right in that area. We want to go to 3.5 on farm ownership loan programs at Farm Service Agency, and we want to go to 3 million on farm operating loans. Why? Ag is getting more expensive, right? And when you're trying to put these operations together, you're trying to make sure financing is there, you got to make sure that you have the dollars behind it to do what you need to do. Nothing is getting cheaper, we've really discovered. The other part is, for beginning farmers and ranchers, those programs are vital. They provide the liquidity you need and the credit you need to get into the business and go from there. So if we don't increase those limits, they're not going to be able to compete with other farmers buying land, buying equipment, all that. Used equipment is as expensive as new equipment now. It's getting ridiculous, right? So when you start to take that into account, it gives you two priorities on the front end for us. Additionally, your family put the farm in a trust 30 years ago for tax purposes. Now you want to get a beginning farmer loan. But you have to ask every single person in that trust if you can use the farm. That's a barrier to entry. So we're, we're working with some other folks across D.C. trying to reduce those barriers to entry for beginning farmers and make it easier to use the programs. Sometimes it takes six months to get the loan done. It takes a year. That's, we don't want that. We want these loans turned around quickly to make sure that farmers can farm, especially our beginning farmers and ranchers who have probably the biggest uphill climb of anybody. Two more things we're working on, because um, we're always working on a bunch of stuff. Rural development programs, somewhat onerous at times. We need to have a little more ease of use, speed up those programs, go from there. I'm from a town of 1,500 people with a dead main street. I know what that looks like. So it's a kind of a passion project for me. We have to get that credit to rural America and make sure those programs work through rural development, pro the systems that are there. And lastly, technology at USDA. It's woefully inadequate in a lot of ways. We're talking 30, 40 year old 
technology on the loan program side. Our systems can't talk to theirs. And that creates a lot of problems. I mean, DOS was great, right? Windows 98 was great. But we need to get into the future and we need to make more efficiency happen and make it easier for our farmers and ranchers to get the credit they need. My brother brings an iPad and the tractor with him, right? That's the world we live in now. But yet, you still have to go to the USDA office to sign a pad to get your loan done. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So we're doing everything we can to try to push that forward as well. Well, my ears certainly perked up when you started talking about the beginning farmer loan, because that's certainly a challenge that my husband and I have had. We farm with his his parents, and you know we don't own any ground as of yet, but it's very confusing. There's a lot of red tape around the beginning farmer loan program. Do we qualify? Do we not qualify? So you mentioned reducing some of those barriers for young farmers. What are some of those barriers you're looking at reducing? So what you just talked about, you don't own any land. So what's your collateral position, right? Are you a bona fide operator? Because you don't own land. We've had situations where um, I had a banker in Western Iowa has a customer that has a hay operation, custom hay operation. He went in, wanted to get a beginning farmer loan, and was told no because he hasn't been a farmer. And he's, he's like, I have a hay operation. I am a farmer. I understand how this works. But because he wasn't a landowner who was actually farming every day and he's doing custom work, he wasn't considered a bona fide operator. And that's a problem, right? It really is. You have someone who wants to get into ag and wants to be involved. You can't get into this whole are you, are you not. If they have a business plan and an operation mindset and they want to get moving and they have a banker who wants to support them, let's support them. Let's move them along and make this happen. Maybe there's some need for education. That's a discussion we can have. We're all for it. There are some USDA grant programs and things over the years that banks have participated in. But at the end of the day, like anytime you make it hard for new folks to come into ag, it it just holds everybody back. And we're going to have a whole generation of farmers coming in that might not have come from a farm. It's a, you talked about your operation, right? Son of your husband's the son of the family, right? I'm the son of a farmer. My access is a lot easier than a lot of other folks, but we want to make sure that any beginning farmer can get in and be part of this, right? So at the end of the day, that's what we're worried about is what's a bona fide farmer, what's not. And we think there's way too many things around that. The other one, it's one of my favorites. You have to be a farmer for three years in order to get a beginning farmer loan. So how, how do you become a farmer for three years if you can't get a loan to become a farmer? For, you know, it, it's backwards, and it's not working the way it should. And again, it's a barrier to entry. I love all those points you made. Last thing I wanted to touch on, Ed, I know this was a big discussion at the conference in Oklahoma City, was the Acres Act. What is it, and what impact is that going to have on rural America? So the Acre Act is the access to credit for, rural econ- for our rural economy. Um, Welcome to D.C., folks. We have an acronym for everything, right? But ACRE is a great acronym at the end of the day. Some of you might have known as ECORA in the past, but it's since changed the name. The legislation would remove the taxation on income earned from interest on farm real estate loans, rural housing loans, and aquaculture. Okay, that's a long bumper sticker to explain what something is, right? At the end of the day, our analysis shows that acre goes through and you'll see interest rates drop 50 to 150 basis points. We're in a rising interest rate environment. 
dropping interest rates 50 to 150 basis points might be the difference for some folks to continue farming year after year after year, right? Sometimes it's $100 a month in interest can make or break you. So let's get some legislation going that creates more competition across agriculture and make sure that those folks have the best possible deal they can get because credit is an input. So let's make it as cheap as possible for everybody, right? The other thing with Acre has 46 co-sponsors. It's bipartisan, it's bicameral. In the past, we've had about 40 co-sponsors, so we're above numbers that we've had in the past on it, which shows that Congress is paying attention. It's a tax piece of legislation, so it's not necessarily part of the Farm Bill. It's running on its own track. But the Ways and Means Committee is talking about tax and agriculture and all those things. So we, we see a real path forward for Acre to get moving. At the end of the day, if you can help 17,000 rural communities and reduce costs and hopefully get people to come back to rural America, that's a good thing. And we believe Acre is going to get us there. Awesome. Well, Ed, I appreciate you keeping the pulse on all of these things and joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, as always, thank you for coming to our conference. I hope others come to our conference next year in Milwaukee, second week of November. We talk about a lot going on in agriculture, the future of ag, and how the economy affects all of that. Well, again, a big thank you there to Ed and the American banking team at ABA. Good outlook there for 2024, as Ed summarized all of that for us and for you, our listeners. But we're going to have some more great conversations next week on the Ag News Daily Podcast. So in the meantime, follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or just hit subscribe so you get notified every time a new episode is released. With that, I'm going to let the people go. (laughs) 